Hey everybody, this is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Before we get started in today's episode, I want to make a brief announcement about something that I am super, super excited about, and I'm really hoping that you'll be excited about it too, and that's the release of our Curious About Cannabis workshop series. Now, I've been teaching these workshops for years, uh, since like 2015, but always in an in-person classroom environment, and this is the first year where launching it virtually and opening up to anyone in the world, really, that has an internet connection and a passion for learning. I've really found that these workshops are particularly valuable to medical cannabis patients, their caregivers, as well as clinicians like doctors and nurses, um, pharmacists, and anyone who's wanting to get involved or has recently gotten involved in the cannabis industry, whether it's on the medical cannabis side, the adult use cannabis side, or in the hemp market, um, this workshop series is really designed to not only provide you with a solid foundation of knowledge about the cannabis plant and about cannabinoids and the endocannabinoid system and all of these different concepts, but it's also designed to empower you with tools and resources so that you can find high quality information on your own and you can evaluate that information And so that you can teach yourself once you leave the workshop and continue your education on your own. So it's really, it's not just about empowering you with knowledge, but also empowering you with the tools and resources to uh, seek out more knowledge in the future well after the workshop is over. So if you're looking for an opportunity to work alongside me and some of my colleagues and other people that you've heard me interview here on on the podcast then you definitely want to check out this workshop series. So you can learn more and you can get signed up for our upcoming session at www.cacpodcast.com slash learn. That's www.cacpodcast.com slash learn. And as always, thanks so much for tuning into the podcast and continuing to support our work. And a special, special thanks to our patrons that have been supporting the podcast through recurring monthly donations. Um, The podcast definitely would not have gone on this long without your support. So thank you so much. Um, With our patron support, we've been able to now offer over 60 hours of educational cannabis and cannabinoid science content through the through the podcast platform. So um, I'm eternally grateful for that. So with that, thanks so much for entertaining this, this short little announcement. And let's not waste any more time. Let's get back to the show. Hi, my name is David Heldreth. I'm with Panacea Plant Sciences and Zeus Farms. Panacea Plant Sciences is a biotech company primarily focused on um, increasing yields for metabolites in plants and, and fungus and bacteria. And then for uh, Zeus Farms, we're focused on expanding the use of the hemp plant beyond uh, seed or smoking and things like that. You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Jason with Curious About Cannabis. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today I am super, super stoked because I'm finally, uh, after 
years of us have been following this person and we've sort of been chatting on social media and everything. We're finally getting around to connect with each other on the podcast, but I'm here with uh, David Heldreth Jr. David, thanks so much for being willing to come on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. I mean, we've had a lot of great conversations about things, so it's good to maybe put some of it on tape. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's that's the whole goal. Try to capture some of this stuff and share it. And I mean, David, there's there's so many different ways we could launch into all of the different things that we have to talk about today. I mean, one of the things that listeners just heard you mention are your two companies. So I guess let's just start there and then we can spin out in all sorts of directions. So can you describe, I mean, you've already kind of described a little bit about those companies and what you do, but there's there's a lot more behind sort of those those basic descriptions. And you you have a lot of, one thing I really like about your work is you're very forward thinking and kind of um, how you want to work with plants and where you see things going. So do you mind just kind of giving listeners a little bit of background on yourself and kind of how Panacea Plant Sciences and Z's Farms uh, came about and what your kind of general mission is with, with both of those entities? Definitely. Um, I'm originally a medical cannabis patient since 2003, I believe it was when I first got my, my first recommendation. Um, I've had a variety of back and knee surgeries as well as previously had issues with PTSD and things from childhood. Um, don't want to get too much into that, but just, um, and then, um, Due to that, I had positive experiences with these with these items, and so due to that, um, I wanted to be able to research and get involved in this. I also have a history uh, working as a journalist um, for many years. Um, so the crossover, and I was originally researching or uh, going to school for aeronautical engineering and marine biology, and so uh, the it ended up being a crossover kind of in in the time period from the time when I was in college till you know which is or and when that was happening and so it kind of changed my trajectory and uh, National Geographic had always been I guess a goal for me because mm. that kind of combines those ideas a lot yeah. of my family are teachers so and my aunt is a microbiologist uh, and so because of those things I think it's kind of framed who I am in my drive and so that's why I think I just uh, have always wanted to share information but then at a certain point, I actually got fired from a job at a newspaper um, because I was speaking out at city council meetings in my hometown regarding uh, the allowance of cannabis dispensaries in the mm. city. Um, I was the sports editor at the time, and um, basically I had uh, stated during a city council meeting that people who disagreed with the mayor should approach her and discuss the subject with her. And... She reported it to the police as a threat. Oh my gosh! Wow. I mean, I said this on TV, um, and <laughs> so it just became. I mean, I understood. I, I it's interesting for a newspaper to fire someone over a free speech issue, kind of. And then the mm -hmm. police yeah. never did anything because there's no that's not a crime to tell someone to approach their council person. Um, <laughs> in, in fact, it <laughs> to be encouraged. <laughs> um, but it just it it uh, also made me reticent to speak about these subjects for a while and also kind of it just framed a lot. So there was a time period where I pulled back from this community. And then I feel like um, basically uh, there was a moment when uh, ketamine helped me come back from the depression from that. And it was a transformative experience for me. And it's something that I don't speak about very often. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, I talk about the ideas, but I don't speak about the experiences. <laughs> 
Yeah. And uh, one time, just a single time, and it, uh, other, you know, and it just um, removed that and allowed me to then come back to the cannabis and uh, psychedelic space in terms of research and sharing information about it without being scared. Um, yeah. Because technically, these items are illegal and you know federally, and so you kind of are putting. I mean, less so now than previously, but especially you know in 2005, you know, and mm -hmm. you were putting yourself in a much different position, um, let alone trying to research these things. Uh, and then I was lucky enough that I ended up, once I made that decision, I left journalism and I went into working in a medical cannabis collective and I was lucky enough to, um, run into the workshop and they were offering mm -hmm. testing services for cannabinoids and terpenes. And they were creating blends and for putting them back into extracts it, very early. They were the first, I know Steve Hill was offering cannabinoid testing, but as far as I know, the workshop was offering terpene testing previously. I think, and I think so, just, yeah. just being able to have access to that data from things we were growing and from all the stuff that was being sold and seeing that and seeing the effects of it just changed everything. And then the internet with Google Scholar, which, you know, the ability to use Google Scholar and Sci-Hub to access data, the combination of those things all kind of happening simultaneously in that, you know, seven years ago, eight years ago time period, I mean, it's just exploded um, my personal um, life in a positive way and as well as I feel uh, the world. So I guess that kind of frames why I've started yeah. these things. So. And then that also yeah, framed how I was able to gather the data because without the workshop or other groups providing the testing services to measure the cannabinoids and terpenes, there was no way to quantify the research. Yep. Yeah, and you're you're really highlighting this like special time period because I remember, yeah, this this time period between like 2006, 2007 or so up until you know, it was like 2014 when hemp programs started to kind of go underway under the pilot programs and everything, you started to kind of see that that hemp wave starting. But there was this special period of time where things really started to come together. Um, I, I have, you and I have a lot of very separate but similar sort of parallel uh, uh, stories in a way because mine is, is sort of similar that I was a medical cannabis patient um, but was kind of hiding from... Uh, things for a while because it was sketchy. I mean, yeah, definitely all the way up until like 2008 or so, it was still quite sketchy to really put your face out there and your name out there associated with cannabis or psychedelics or anything. But um, similarly, I come from a family of teachers, um, which is one reason why I'm so passionate about, you know, science communication and everything. And um, and likewise, um, issues with like PTSD, and I'm also bipolar, and I've had some very transformative experiences through cannabis and psychedelics. And that's one reason why I also decided to take the leap and finally be like, okay, we're just going to embrace this and see where it goes and, and, and see what happens. So, you know, um, that's, that's super fascinating to learn, you know, that you kind of went through all of that. And, and you're mentioning, uh, you know, I think a lot of people nowadays don't even remember when Google scholar wasn't around, but, um, <laughs> it hasn't always been here. <laughs> and, um, this time period, yeah, when Google Scholar came about and then when Sci-Hub got going, which anyone who's not familiar with Sci-Hub, you know, it's essentially a, a site. Sometimes the website changes if it gets shut down, but 
uh, they they collect um, research papers and open them up to the public. And uh, you know, there's controversy around that. Um, and technically, I can't recommend people do it, um, but um, it's a resource that's out there um, that is available, and you can essentially use Google Scholar to find papers, use Sci-Hub to get uh, open access to the full text of those papers, and then, I mean, you talk about a a renaissance of um, intellectualism and education and stuff, self-education and everything. I mean, I you know I have a daughter that's two years old now, and I'm like, geez, she's going to be so much smarter than me, uh, given the access to information and experiences and perspectives. I mean, it's it's going to be incredible. So um, I think I think that your story and and my story and those those sort of similarities. I think a lot of people that are around our our age. I think we're probably similar in age. I think a lot of people in our sort of generation have gone through that that similar sort of transition of being able to finally acknowledge the roles that some of these plants and these plant compounds and entheogenic plants and things have have played in our lives, and then being able to openly express that interest. Like we want to understand why these things work. What are the proper applications and limitations? What safety issues are there actually? And being able to really um, do true hands-on research. I mean, it's it's a really incredible time. And then how did that, and I want to come back around to the journalism thing, because I know that you're a huge fan of Hunter S. Thompson, like I am as well. So we'll definitely talk about that. But how did that transition lead to you know, starting to get some feedback on terpenes and everything to I'm going to turn this into some serious businesses and I've got some ideas of where I want to really see these things go in the future. So around that time period, I also discovered other, or not discovered because I had previously used uh, psilocybin mushrooms and they had been helpful, Mm -hmm. but not as much. But at that time period, I just was like, I'm just, I'm going in, I'm just doing these things. I'm not going to be scared anymore. I am, and it, um, and during that time period, there was a group in the Los Angeles area, um, which I, was interesting called the, uh, God, what was their name? Weird Hollywood Youth, I believe. And literally they would have events where people would gather at barbecues at the abandoned zoo in LA and everyone would drop acid. And, <laughs> and it's just things like that. And I took, you know, they were interesting situations, but you ran into scientists and other people at these types of things who had similar interests. And over time you start, while I want to share information, I believe that a lot of these things are going to be patented and controlled by people over time. And the also the only way to get the money that you then need to continue your research is to have a patent and to sell the research to somebody typically. Um, and also if you own the patent, you can control how it gets used. And so eventually the, goal would be to find a group like maps who is i don't know if everyone who watched who probably most people will know that group is we can get it in a moment but a group that does basically is creating a i would describe as a non-profit model for mm-hmm. psychedelic therapy i suppose or at least for a uh, psychedelic therapy um pharmaceutical company uh is their goal and to be able to create technology that you license to groups like that to help them create lower cost products. And then you just get the money back that you, for what you developed it for and try and develop partnerships like that. So you can reduce costs for pharmaceutical development and also allow it for use in recreational and other markets. So, uh, seeing basically seeing maps form at that, you know, which is also in that form because yep. they were older, but the, the success they've had with MDMA in that time frame, uh, uh, kind of, uh, reflected me seeing that vision and kind of applying it, but to the plant sciences portion of it, I suppose. 
Um, and so that is kind of our long-term goal. And so by gathering that data, I started noticing why people, how these plants were changing based on growth environment, uh, the same clone, the same exact plant. And then GW Pharmaceuticals, uh, oh gosh, what's his name? Their cultivation expert uh, had filed his thesis paper on the optimization and characterization of cannabis sativa. And their goal was to control everything to make it exactly the same every time. Mm -hmm. I saw that and saw every way that there was variation yep. and was like, how can I manipulate these yields to achieve these other things? And so you could increase these other cannabinoids that they weren't thinking about or yeah. that they thought of as impurities in that, in these studies. And so then you start noticing these pathways and you notice that different temperatures or different phytohormone levels or all these different potentials for manipulating the plant. And this is, I think he published that paper. And I saw it in 2008 or 2009. It used to be on GW's website and, and then yeah. they removed and then they took it down. Like they, they, they used to have published like early on, they had all their published papers yep. linked there. They it had was, a great educational section and stuff and talked about the genetics. It was great. And then it all just disappeared one day. Um, yep. And so, but that information along with the workshop stuff and then what I was seeing by getting the data from the workshop and seeing also just all the, seeing every product that we brought in because we were doing pesticide. That's the other thing is, is we were doing pesticide testing. We were doing mycotoxin testing. We were testing for um, potency of CBD, CB, uh, THC and CBG for uh, and acids. And we were, um, and then the, like, I think it was eight terpenes and we were averaging the potency test from three random picks and nice. averaging it. And like, this was 12 years ago or eight years ago. Like, and it's painful to see what the industry has become. I, it's, I mean, in ways the medical was worse in some places, but it was far better in others. Yeah, I mean, and can you elaborate on that? Because one thing I, I really want to make sure we spend time talking about is how the cannabis industry, and when I say cannabis, I'm talking about medical adult use and hemp altogether, how it's all evolved and and some of these trends. Yeah, so do you mind elaborating on some of those things that you that you noticed? Because, I mean, some of the things that you're talking about right now, just basic sampling protocols are things that, <laughs> But we're still struggling to like get companies to adopt on their own and to see the value and, and to recognize the value of like data sets that can be validated and, and what it takes to create data sets that, you know, uh, are, can be validated and, and everything like that. So yeah, sure. Um, what, what you've noticed and, and kind of how the industry has evolved, um, for better or worse. So as I was saying is it's, Better and worse is that initially when we were doing this, and I'm sure people like the workshop and Steve Hill can indicate there wasn't a whole lot of people utilizing their services because they didn't yeah. have to. Um, but the people who did really cared. <laughs> um, yep. And so what it allowed is, is that we could develop these systems. And so groups like ours created, you know, this intricate way to ensure that you were getting a standard. Like we were identifying, like you might get variation, but at least our goal was to like, we're hitting the middle or like yes. your potency is going to go one way or the other, but at least the number we're giving you will tell you compared to what everything else you're getting from us is. Yep. Um, and so we could know, cause we were using the product. I mean, we needed to know this so we know what to use. Um, and I think that's also the difference in medical versus recreational is that 
you see this transition, not that the people who were in recreational don't utilize the product, but yeah. that there's not the same uh, objectives. Um, yes. And so now there's people who want to test larger and larger lots for items instead of smaller and smaller lots and do I get more granular in terms of detail? And that's because of cost. And I understand that from a uh, business perspective, but then I also dislike it from a uh, consumer and data perspective. Um, but my coming back to my history as a, with journalism and my family as teachers and my aunt being a microbiologist, um, uh, for having those types of backgrounds, Upton Sinclair was one of my heroes as a child. And so my, his book, uh, The Jungle, led to the FDA. Yep. Eventually, yeah. he created systems that led to the rules on journalism, the first code of journalism ethics. He, I, we need regulation because unfortunately, human beings will do anything. Yes, yes. <laughs> I don't know. Yes, I mean, I, it's the best and the worst part of us is that we're infinitely creative. Right. And you have to consider humans as, you know, um, yeah, you know, it's it's nature. Nature explores all energetic pathways and, you know, and you tend to notice the more stable ones more often, but it's exploring everything and humans are the same way. Um, if given a chance, there are some humans out there that will take advantage or do things that put people at risk, do things poorly. And it, I mean, this is something that um, early on, one reason why I started to follow you is because you were one of the only other people in the industry that I heard talking about um, the FDA, not in a combative way, but in a sense of like, Hey, you need to understand what what's in the CFRs and what GMP actually is and what it means for something to be grass. Hey, do you know what intended use means? Um, because grass doesn't just it's not just this universal thing. And I really had I wasn't hearing anyone else other than myself. And I felt like I was screaming into a void trying to help people understand why regulations are actually important and why if you're not taking the time to wrap your heads around one why those regulations are in place in the first place. Why is the Food, Drugs, and Cosmetics Act, you know, in existence? And what does it say? How does it control things? I mean, I just worry that companies are not setting themselves up for success in the future because they've been so resistant to the FDA, the DEA. And I get it because um, governmental forces have sort of been this this major antagonistic um you know, thing to the industry for so long, but um, it's refreshing to hear you talk about that, that, you know, there is value in these regulations because unfortunately humans are going to do whatever they can get away with. Maybe not you or you or you, but someone around here is going to do whatever they can and try to make money and just get away with it and disappear into the night. And they don't care if they hurt anybody, poison people or whatever. It's, you know, they're just focused on the short-term gain. Oh, definitely. And it's unfortunate because that raises costs and barriers to entry for the market in general. Yep. And then that then plays to the people who have more money, which is, I, I don't agree with necessarily, but yep. it's an unfortunate side effect of it. And that's why I think in some ways I'm more, I don't like, I lean, like, lean towards the idea that government should be um, either providing grants or developing infrastructure mm -hmm. that is communally shared to reduce barriers to entry rather than just requiring licenses that cost more money. They should create yeah. some of this infrastructure so it evens the playing field. And 
Sometimes it's going to be testing services. Sometimes it's it could be again, it could be grants so private industry can buy these things. But then that yeah. private group gets it and someone else doesn't. So it's it, I'm not saying that I know exactly how these things should be structured, but there's other solutions rather than just letting yeah. large corporations do it. And I think that's why the large corporations and the people going to prison, I think you're why people have a large distrust of the federal government. And I understand it. And I, I obviously did as well. Um, mm -hmm. But then coming, having been a journalist, I have a lot of, had a lot of interaction with law enforcement and I had a lot of interaction with the federal government and with local government. And I covered, you know, the, I also was a city courts reporter. I lived in the British Virgin Islands and mm. covered things there. I've lived, you know, I you know, I've worked at a newspaper in various states and covered local government up to state government. It's you learn a lot, and yeah. uh, as you learn about regulation, you also get less worried about just asking questions. And that's the also the yes. thing I think people should do is go to city council meetings. Go, you have a question about a paper, write the author that wrote the study if you don't understand it. We don't always have time to answer because I write papers too, but sometimes we do. You have a question from a journalist who wrote an article about a tax, write the journalist. His email is usually at the bottom of the story. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, how I, you know, some of the, the researchers I get on the podcast, how do I do it? I find papers that I like and I look at the primary authors and I find their contact information and I start a conversation. Like it's, I think, um, Absolutely, there's this perspective of uh, separation or disconnect between, um, you know, sort of the public and writers or scientists, regulators, all that sort of thing. And um, something I, I try to encourage people, especially in the hemp space, since it's a little further along in scaling and everything is, you know, uh, do you realize that the FDA often contracts your state Department of Ag and stuff to do FDA inspection. So it's usually a good idea to form a good relationship with your local folks. Like they are your feds a lot of times. I mean, um, and not, be, yeah, not being afraid to just ask questions and speak up. And if something doesn't make sense, um, yeah, get clarity. Don't, don't just um, hover in that, that uncomfortable gray area and sort of be like, well, we're just going to do it and hope for the best. Um I've found that in general, most regulators um, are very supportive. Like they want to see businesses succeed and they want to see good examples of cannabis businesses um, operating. And so when people speak up, they're like, okay, you must want to do things right. And in general, um, I, it's been very rare that I've, I've seen uh, regulators, um, you know, be dismissive or, or anything like that. Every now and then you get these regulators that are very anti-cannabis or whatever and are trying to kind of hold things up, but they usually don't last long, um, you know, working in systems that are involved in cannabis anyway. Um, so that's a great point to raise. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. Um, so it's a, it's an interesting transition towards uh, recreational and on like the safety front, um, you know, there's right now in Washington state, there's discussion about uh, t limiting THC content in the recreational market mm -hmm. potentially. And I don't believe in bans or limits um, for that in terms of not allowing the product on the market because that'll just push people to, to unregulated product. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing I do support is that I'm not sure how much you've seen. I'm sure you've seen some of the stuff I posted about it, but that just the correlation between the 5-HT2A receptor and the CB1 receptor yeah, and the heteromers, the heteromers. Yep. and the length of use and the age of start and the amount you use and the, the core. And 
again, genetics and other factors and all kinds of things correlate in that. So it's not going to be a problem for everyone, but there is a correlation there. And based on that, also CBD and T CBD and CBG have similarly shown to, to, to reduce those things. So I think while places are doing things like taxing sugar higher and taxing, uh, you know, liquor, that's, you know, pure alcohol versus beer more that perhaps a similar model may be better. And I believe that taxes are generally too high on cannabis. So more along the lines, I view the idea of removing or reducing taxes on things that are below certain THC contents yep. um, as a way to, to increase the safety in the recreational market. Cause I don't believe in bans. I believe everyone mm -hmm. should be able to purchase something, but if you need to have things like that, so you incentivize people to make decisions that are beneficial for health, I believe. And I also believe you should have home grow so and allow people to do things for themselves. So that way, if they choose to not participate in the market, but they want to access it, they don't have to deal with that. Yep. I totally, totally agree. Um, the the options should uh, be available. And in general, any, I don't know, I, I always feel very strange, this idea of prohibiting people to grow plants. Um, <laughs> it just is strange. I, I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm just sort of on that page of like, I, I just don't think that should ever, ever be a thing. If people want to grow cannabis plants, they ought to be able to, if they want to grow San Pedro cactus or, you know, whatever, um, that they're into, you know, if they're making decisions, they're adults and, you know, they, you know, they're, they're responsible for themselves. Um, I think that's but, happening. It's, we're seeing the world shift in that direction. At least I mean, yeah. Biden on the 16th, did you see his comments about, uh, he stated that he didn't believe that people should go to prison for drug use anymore. Good, good. I know he's been getting a lot of pressure to issue pardons to nonviolent non drug offenders. Um, I hope we see that because that's been one of the big things lacking in a lot of um, estates rollout legalization and stuff. Uh, there's usually a big um, missed opportunity to actually let people out of jail that really should have never been there in the first place. Um, and it's, I, you know, I laugh about it, but it's actually a really sad, terrible thing. Um, and so I, I hope to see some, some action on that. And this segues really well into connecting to what we're, we're just talking about, but kind of forward looking, um, another thing that you talked a lot about after the farm bill, um, of 2018 was released, um, that I was really happy to see is you were kind of like, um, everyone take a pause. The farm bill doesn't do what you think it does. And just because hemp is legal, that doesn't mean you can just throw uh, cannabis constituents into foods, you know, and there's, you're just entering the world of FDA regulation. And then there's this new, you know, all these other things you have to do. Um, and so I, I want to talk about that a little bit. You know, if, if the federal government does deschedule cannabis, which more and more they're, they're talking about doing. Chuck Schumer was talking about that recently of kind of trying to look at all of the bills that have been proposed recently and trying to take the best parts and come up with something that takes the social equity pieces as well as the descheduling and everything and, and try to get it pushed through maybe this year. Um, but I think we're going to see a very similar thing to what happened with the farm bill, that cannabis will get descheduled, people will celebrate, oh, this is amazing, now we can, you know, the industry can can really start to do its thing without maybe realizing, you know, what are the requirements to put something uh, sort of new into the food, you know, uh, supply chain or into dietary supplements, herbal supplements, and even cosmetics. And so 
um, let's just talk a little bit about what's required to, for, let's start with grass, because I think that's a very misunderstood thing. Um, can you describe a little bit about what grass is and how it applies to cannabinoid products now in the hemp market, but also looking forward to a potentially descheduled, you know, future for cannabis? Uh, what should producers be thinking about in terms of FDA compliance as far as grass is concerned? Oh, this is great. Um, I'll, do you mind if I take a step back in the description of why, uh, yeah. just to, to frame it? So yeah, um, the way I like to explain it to people is that if you go to a smoke shop, you can often buy salvia or some other smoke blend or some of these compounds but it usually is, and for a while, I don't know if you still can, there's probably some, but bath salts were also mm -hmm. a legal chemical that you could purchase. And, but it never said that it was for human consumption. Right. Because it is not a controlled substance or those items weren't a controlled substance, but they are not approved for human consumption. And that is the line. And then that then frames, well, what does it mean to be approved for human consumption? That means that the FDA has approved it either as a food, which we'll get into that cat, what all that means, uh, a drug, which is easy, uh, or a supplement. Uh, and so, or, you know, cosmetics, sorry, and cosmetics. Right. <laughs> and so cosmetics have their own rules and then drugs yep. have their own rules. And then you have supplements, which have their own rules as of 1992 due to the food drug or the food and supplement act. Uh, which frames what you can do with supplements. So, and that is for things like tinctures or pill form. So the way, if you're going to create a formulation that is in those types of formulations, then it's not going to be regulated as a food or it's going to be regulated as a supplement. And so you're going to need to follow those rules. <laughs> but then if yep. you want to put into an item that it, that is categorized as a food <laughs> or a beverage, which is basically the same. <laughs> and that is of course, separate from, alcohol or tobacco as well right <laughs> um yeah <laughs> all these layers then, then you uh then it would be the fda and it would be through either the generally regarded as safe pathway or the food additive pathway mm -hmm. um and so the difference in those is primarily just different regulations they almost require the same amount of science there's slightly different requirements for each some of the main requirements for the grass pathway is that all the data must be public it has to be yeah. public studies for that. And so, but it's also faster typically. So people, and you don't have to submit a grass application to the FDA currently. They're allowing what's known as self-affirmed grass, which means you can do all the studies, hold the panel, and then uh, basically just never tell them and just start selling it, uh, which is interesting. And be There's prepared to defend yourself. Yeah, because at any moment they can question it. And there's a lawsuit right now that is actually waiting on the judge to to finalize it federally against the FDA, saying that that's not legal under the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act, and that they have to review it. Uh, and that hearing last court date was in October, and so any any day now we could hear a judgment which could change that. So I just want to frame that, so yeah. just to make it more complicated. Right. Um, <laughs> um, and then the food additive pathway you, is if you're going to get a little bit more proprietary information, things like that. Uh, and you don't want to everything to have to be public data and you just want to submit to the FDA more directly. Um, and it's also wider allowance for uses than you would get in a grass pathway. Cause as you said earlier, intended use, uh, because it's the, it's generally regarded as safe 
for whatever use you are using it for that they approve. You may be able to do studies that show indications for safety for a wider category, but you have to, it's the, the broader that category is, the more data you're going to need to support that. And the more expensive it's going to be and yeah, more resource intensive. So, and I think that as this moves forward, that I believe that the, what Schumer said is that they also is that they plan on consolidating the bills. So mm-hmm. I believe that what they're going to do is merge. And I also, from talking to hemp uh, people at the round table and the industry association, mm-hmm. uh, that it seems like most likely I personally don't, I don't know, but I don't think that CBD bill for supplements is, right now that's in Congress is going to pass. I think yeah, that's going to get folded into that bill. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to become a giant like cannabis omnibill, yeah. omnibill bus, which will basically just, um, it will include uh, the allowance for certain hemp products to be in foods. I believe it'll set a limit. Uh, I believe that it'll raise the THC in hemp to 1%. Uh, I believe we'll see smokable hemp or recreational cannabis, which will be things above certain THC limits, which will be regulated separately for all of these things. But we'll just, so we'll just talk about hemp, but basically THC will mimic this, I believe, just in mm-hmm. a different layer, because that's basically what alcohol does, yeah. <laughs> you know, for food or it just makes or, sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and tobacco you know, saying exact things. Uh, and so, but then you'd have like the TTB involved additionally, if it was those, um, but, oh, sorry. Uh, and so then you'll end up with them uh, approving those items or sorry. So then you'll see the THC level go to 1% and then you'll see those, uh, they'll set a limit for supplements and foods, I believe for items like CBG and CBD. I believe that they'll change the definition of THC to include mm-hmm. all isomers of THC yep. because yep. from I spoke with the White House and had meetings with the White House and the FDA when they were doing those hearings for the CBD and hemp policy and their biggest issue was about drug testing and also I brought up Delta 8 uh, and other things to them and because like you said I'm never going to be the person that's just going to hide things and let it kind of no I want to know and I want you to know so we can regulate and get this over with because it's going to happen and we, the yep. faster we get this resolved the quicker the market can just become an industry and go to baseline. And so I just, I'm putting everything on the table. <laughs> and yep. uh, so they're concerned about the, even CBN for mm-hmm. psychoactivity and drug testing. And because it's hard for controlling, as you get regulation, as it becomes legal, that will be less important, but it's still important for things like uh, people who drive trains or have commercial driver's mm-hmm. licenses or things, even if it's legal, it's going to make it difficult for them to indicate if this person is intoxicated on the job. And so I think there's still going to be regulations which will restrict certain classes of people from being able to use these things until we develop yep. testing, which can allow them. It's unfortunate and I don't like that, but it, there's all these weird subcategories, which are, these aren't necessarily things that I want. This is just what I think is it's going to It's the practical happen. reality. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I just like to say that because sometimes people get really mad at me when I say these things. Oh, I know. I, I experienced the exact same thing. Um, I, I, I've had to stop myself several times and explain to people, this isn't what I want. It's just what I think is practically going to happen. Just understanding the way these things go, the way that um, it, typically these organizations handle these these you know types of issues. I, they've already set certain precedents, and for them to do things drastically different would require you know, a lot of other things to happen that is just very unlikely. And I, I totally agree. I've been, the Delta 8 thing is something that's been on my mind a lot. I was talking to someone that runs a lab on the East Coast very recently about it. Um, They were asking 
you know, what's what's the deal with Delta 8 THC? Why don't people realize most of it is synthetically derived and has all of these, you know, different isomers in it that we have identified? It. Essentially all of it. If it's Pretty not much just... all of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, if it's in a major, if it's in a significant concentration, um, then it's either been synthesized or it's been derived from something that um, shouldn't have been in the hemp field in the first place. Um, but uh, it's 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 tricky. And, you know, Delta 8, I've been telling people, I mean, to government regulators, I mean, that's synthetic drug manufacturing. That's the way they, they see that. Um, and that's just the way it is. And, you know, as far as the future of the definition of total THC in hemp, I've been telling people since the farm bill passed, they're going to change it to total tetrahydrocannabinols. I guarantee you they're going to change it. That's the way the DEA thinks about it already. Um, it's It's just already there. And it was just a hiccup in their minds of, you know, how the language was put together in 2018. And I, I think, um, I agree with you that I think that there's going to be this massive consolidation where they address a lot of the hemp stuff and the THC rich cannabis stuff, um, pretty much all at, all at once. And, and if they don't sort of depending on how long it takes them, then I think at a minimum when the farm bill is, uh, revised, um, that a lot of these things will happen then too, like the total THC definitions, um, which will then take care of the Delta 8 issue altogether uh, and the CBN issue, uh, depending on how, you know, what language they use um, to write it up. Well, uh, so, so I, England, England has a, as a one where they use cannabinols instead of even ah, tetrahydrin. Yeah, and so yeah. it captures both. And so that like, cause I've been looking, I've been, cause that's the other thing is you start looking at what other countries, what the mm -hmm. uh, World Health Organization and the UN, because those, all these things inform each other. Yep. And so yep. like the governments are all working together. And so while things are going to be different, like these things, like you said, they're not going to create a whole new, they're not going to create a cannabis bureau. They're not, they're not, yeah. they're just going to put it into all these things. Um, and I think smokable cannabis will fall under all of the regulations that that tobacco does. And so vaping products are going to be the same. And it's going to be very difficult to get a pre-roll or to get a um, vape product federally approved. And yeah. it's going to be tobacco and alcohol level approvals. And so yep. once it goes federal, like those are going to be the kinds of things and be, where there's going to be emission testing that for vaping there's going to and for pre-rolls i think that it'll be similar to canada where you have this situation where the raw flour and extract are the only things allowed upon rollout mm -hmm. yeah and, I agree. It, and it scales from there but it also depends on two things and that's if on which of these two models they take do does this go with a state's rights more act rollout or does this go with a none of what existed before matters federal system yeah because yeah. i think either one is likely and if it's the second then everyone in the industry is screwed mm -hmm. well and this relates to two things one i want to eventually loop this around to what you've done with z's farms and what you've gone through to get fda approval to use um, hemp leaves and food which is really cool um, but before we get to that point, and maybe we can intertwine these these two things, what what do you think producers should be doing right now to not just to prepare because this is beyond preparedness. This is stuff that like 
should lobbying. be already happening. Yeah, lobbying. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and, and and beyond that, you know, all these CBD producers and now, I mean, it's the CBD industry is now a misnomer because CBG, CBN, Delta 8, all these things have, you know, now just rushed into the, the hemp market, especially, um, you know, I, I can ramble about all the things I would recommend to people, but what are some of the sort of first steps you think that these companies that really want to play the long game and want to survive these transitions, what should they be thinking about? What should they be doing? Getting federal approval well, in hemp. So we'll start with hemp because it's easier. Yeah. I mean, it's basically the same thing, yeah. but just once legalization, um, trying to get grass studies done on these compounds because everyone's obsessed with CBD, but guess what? CBG isn't in a, oh, so here's the thing is we haven't talked about the epidiolics issue with preemption. So the reason why CBD hasn't been allowed in food because people have conducted gender regarded to safe studies for it. That's right. The reason yeah. why all of that is illegal is because it was already put into a drug and they started those drug trials before it was legally allowed in any food, which means it can't be. Because yep. why would a pharmaceutical company develop a product that can then be in the food supply? And why would our FDA want a pharmaceutical ingredient in the food supply? So yep. the, the combination of these things, and so that preempts that. And that's why it also preempts its use in supplements. And honestly, the supplement bill will only allow CBD in, or hemp ingredients in supplements. Um, because of also, additionally, it won't allow it in foods that as it's written. Yep. Um, and so... Oh, apologies. And so, but basically, um, because of this, you could be doing cannabigerol or cannabichromine mm -hmm. or and on and on and on terpenes, mm -hmm. essential oils, because even the essential oils from cannabis are from hemp are not allowed in food use because right. even though those compounds are pretty much every single one of them has been identified almost as gender regarded as safe in something else, that formulation hasn't been. And realistically, you don't know the genotoxicity or things potentially of, of every mixture. And the other thing is that every variation in terp in cannabinoid or terpene profile will require a different approval. Yes. Yeah. And so, and, and you, it, sorry, I just touched on something. I just want to highlight real quick. That's really important because it, it comes up a lot in that the, the cannabis industry talks so much about entourage effect, entourage effect, entourage effect, entourage effect. But when it comes to this issue, you just mentioned that every formulation is unique and you don't you don't know what the potential safety and toxicity profiles of unique formulations are going to be. When that comes up, everyone runs to preclinical research on isolated components and and tries to use that to promote safety. Whereas then on the other side, when they start talking about herbal cannabis and whole plant extracts and everything, they want to talk about entourage effects and how valuable and important they are. And it's like, you can't have both. Like <laughs> this, you this, can't have your cake and eat it too. Right. Yeah. So I just wanted to, to just highlight that point because it's a major um, sort of hypocrisy that comes up a, a lot that we want to use preclinical research to talk about therapeutic effects and safety and toxicity and stuff. And then um, of, of, of newer products but then uh, we try to run to synergistic effects and entourage effects to defend, you know, um, uh, herbal, you know, cannabis and whole plant stuff. And I and I think there's a lot to synergistic effects and everything. And I'm not trying to downplay that, but it's just like um, you've, if you're recognizing that that's a thing, then you have to recognize that every unique formulation it's a is. Sword. Yes, absolutely. Yep. So I mean, so the thing is, is the other flip side of that is that unique formulations are also being patented. So yeah. 
you like so right now gw pharmaceuticals is being sued by canopy canopy bought a patent well, bought a company for 250 million dollars or so and got this patent which appears to be one of the early the earliest co2 patent for this so mm -hmm. it'll be i'm sure they'll challenge it in court <laughs> um oh, yeah. i mean that's what's that's what's happening um but in the lawsuit it'll become a challenge on the patent um or there'll be a settlement we'll see and based on that they could get hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, the patent expires next year. So it's only going to be good retroactively for people who've used it. But that means anybody who is using that technology in the cannabis industry right now is a target for a retroactive lawsuit. And they can do that forever. So any money you've made using this, their method over however long, you could owe them. And there's more patents like that. There was a group that had one approved for specific CBD ratios last year. Luckily, that cannabis company went out of business, but someone's probably going to get that IP and start applying it. So there's just all like, and there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these. And I mean, I just filed one. I have a few myself. And that's, again, the reason why. But it's going to become the situation where in order to operate in the industry, you're going to have to have both patents and regulatory approvals for licenses and have your product approved by a regulatory agency. And no one in this space has any history with any of those. Well, not no one, because there's because companies, large companies are now bringing those people in mm -hmm. because of this. Um, and, and so I think that those are the things that people need to do. And unfortunately, as a small grower or I just I'm. I don't see them existing in the industry in the long run. You don't, and if they do, they're going to be working for a larger entity like tobacco farmers only farm for Philip Morris. And if yeah. you don't want to do that, then you're probably like, you're going to have a really tough time getting product to market yep. or yep. getting regulations. And it's just like, and that's why, like, as I said before, perhaps the government needs to socialize some of those costs for systems to provide safety testing so instead of it being a, a lab that basically better funds the fda or whatever group that is so that way they can conduct that research on the products yeah. when people submit them and so or and subsidize that or subsidize the cost at least for applications for that so that way we have more data because that would be beneficial to everybody so, but try but trying to get the government to spend money is a fun idea <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah you've got to come to them with a plan on how they don't have to do anything and it's going to take care of itself and then they might and, and make you money and, it. and make and yeah, make exactly it. and make you money <laughs> so yeah. they're going to want to tax the businesses and so that but then that that's the problem is you end up in a situation where who there it has to be paid for and so it's just really difficult to find where to take that money from i i also am for things like getting rid of Obviously, as I think that as we get rid of drug crime, because we make drugs legal, mm -hmm. that you will simultaneously have a reduction in the need for the policing system and the jail system. And that'll have a drastic reduction on cost. And I think that that money savings should be transferred to social equity programs, to programs like this, and to help the people who were previously incarcerated. And so I think that that reduction, like, I think that that should be uh, factored in as well as actually written into these bills. Absolutely. And and this is one reason why I think it's so important to talk about all of this, because um, there is an opportunity here for, it, given the, the, the traditional systems at play, there is a potential future where we could um, have the future of the cannabis industry, and not just the cannabis industry, but the future of natural products and everything be more inclusive. 
um, especially as as like you're pointing out. Um, I mean, the dominoes are falling with drug decriminalization um, across the country now. More and more cities and states are starting to put together bills to uh, either decriminalize or um, in some instances uh, sort of quasi-legalize pretty much most drugs in general and, and to get rid of drug crime, shift it to a, you know, a mental health and medical um, issue and you know, being taken care of that way. And so there's a lot of budgetary changes that are going to be at play over the next you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Uh, which presents this opportunity uh, to say, okay, how can we move money around um, to ensure that um, people are able to to farm and everything? And something bringing up the subsidization thing early on when Oregon legalized cannabis and changed their testing rules to make them, you know, more rigorous, uh, the industry really cried out and was like, "This is way too expensive. We can't afford it." And it's something that that myself and uh, my colleague that I was working with at the time, we kept saying, like, why doesn't the state use some of the tax money to subsidize some of the cost of testing? Um, like, that's an easy solution and everybody wins. Like, um, the testing labs, I think people have a very uh, underappreciation for the pressures that testing labs are under, like, as far as how cash-strapped they are to operate because there's so much pressure for them to offer cheap services that are as fast as possible with the most favorable data possible. Um, and it's it's very unrealistic. I mean, I, I come from a background where I'm used to being around uh, traditional natural products labs. And I'm like, geez, you know, 30 day turnaround time is normal in natural products testing. And, you know, the costs are like two to three X um, what we often see in, in some of these states that have onboarded testing rules and or that don't have testing rules that have, you know, uh, suspect labs um, operating and doing testing and stuff. Um, and so recognizing that those costs do need to be higher realistically in order to get good data and to ensure that labs are not incentivized to um, skirt around quality control and that sort of thing. Cause there's so much of that, even if a lab is accredited, which is something I bark about a lot now. It's, yeah. Accreditation is great, but you can still cheat with accreditation. Like that's not, you know, the end all be all. And really we need to remove the incentives for labs to uh, issue bad data and to, to skirt around, you know, different quality controls that they know they need to be doing. Um, and so a great way to do that, subsidize. Um, just take some of the burden off of the producers, um, take some of the burden off of the testing labs, and help everything balance out. And ultimately, we end up with better data sets, safer products, and, and there's not this animosity between uh, different people in the industry that are at different parts of the supply chain. Um, so, you know, we'll see if that happens. But I, I, one of the reasons why I wanted to really have this conversation is I think a lot of well-intentioned people are wasting energy, um, lobbying for things that will never happen, and aren't recognizing the real potential practical steps forward. And so um, I hope that through this, people are learning maybe some of the things that they should clue in on and focus on. You know, uh, when everyone was barking at the USDA after they issued their rules um, initially, um, and everyone was like, oh, they need to change the THC level, and they need to change the definition of THC, all these things. I'm like, well, they have to match the farm bill. Like, they can't have rules that are different than the law. So um, that's not going to happen. And I mean, there's tons of money being poured to try to lobby changes that it's, it's just not going to happen. And so, um, 
I guess bringing this all around, let's talk about what your company did to get FDA approval just to use hemp leaves and food and kind of share maybe some practical steps forward for people um, beyond what we've just said. And then I know we're, we're getting on an hour. I don't know how much time you have. Um, this hour has already slipped away, but if you have a little more time, I'm happy to, to keep going. Otherwise, we can wrap it up in just a bit. But I do want to talk um, a little bit as well, kind of coming back around to the Hunter S. Thompson piece, um, the role that communication and journalism around these issues plays. Like, um, you know, one thing I would love to see is a, uh, a sort of gonzo journalism article about lab testing. Um, you know, like people that really immerse themselves. Like, I would love to write an article about it um, if I weren't scared that I'd be sued by somebody. Um, but I'd love to see more of that because there's an urgent need to get a really, um, I don't know, unique perspective on some of these things to help people realize uh, kind of what's at play, what dynamics are going on, and 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 what they need to focus on. But I'm rambling at that point. Let's come back around. Um, let's talk about uh, using the hemp leaves in food. What did that process look like? And um, um, how can people kind of learn from what you went through to, um, you know, kind of accomplish some of their own goals for hemp foods and, and getting them approved? Um, so our route was slightly different than, than most. Um, I actually started <laughs> this process before hemp was legal, before the 2014 mm. Farm Bill. Um, and initially they wouldn't even talk to me. Uh, directly about it once I said <laughs> that it was hemp they like it's illegal you can't is it <laughs> cannabis is illegal go Fair away enough. <laughs> oh that was a lot I had that like I mean even on so I'm working with larger ad companies with now that I have this patented but for for that whole time I was also trying to get a hold of them to get sourcing and things and that same thing happened now completely different but yeah. literally I've been saying the same thing and all these things it's like I keep saying the same thing and all of a sudden now the world like thinks I'm a genius and thinks I'm doing I'm like I've been saying the same thing um but <laughs> but um so they uh basically eventually they would let me but before they would what I did is was like well what if it was a new species of lavender and what or spinach and I wanted to utilize this spinach for people to eat and like because i was a journalist so and the other thing is is that i utilized multiple methods of gathering information from government regulations because i own a business and so mm -hmm. when you have a corporation you contact them you can get information that is different than you can get if you're an individual typically yeah yep. but if you contact them as a journalist and i do write articles about these things whenever mm -hmm. and then i publish them and so they will respond to those and they will you will get different and you can request different information and then as an individual you can get different information and so it's not always about, you know, even just one route of attack. It's like you need to hit every aspect possible to try and gathering your own research separately on what they've done previously. And, um, and so basically, you know, and it's also don't, if you get a no, think around the problem. Don't yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like figure out what, and so basically like, I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to call it something else, get the answer that I need. And then once this is legal, I can come back and have this discussion again, which is what I did. Yeah. <laughs> um, the other thing is, is that, like I said, gender regarded to safe and food additives are the typical allowance. Um, food, like spinach isn't a, is this a food? Like a plant isn't a food additive. It's a food. And so I'm try. I worked with them to get that clarified and an allowance as a food, whole food 
So um, that's complicated method, but that was basically the route we went. And we're limited in what it can be used in based on that, though. So mm. it's similar to the grass, you know, where it's intended use. So yeah. raw leaf, there's a reason why we have the particular products that we do currently um, with these allowances. So and particular cultivars and so you have to show safety and things. So if we eventually want to extract and like take protein out of it, that's going to require a whole new approval. That's going to be a food additive or grass. And we haven't done that. We're working on that right now. We also are doing a, we supplied hemp to the university of Can or no Kansas state. Sorry. Um, I don't know if you heard about their animal food study recently, they're feeding hemp to, uh, cows and they've already reported on, the nutrition content levels of the stalk, leaf, flower, uh, I believe roots, um, seed, flower, post-extracted. Nice. Wow. Uh, and and then they did a uh, and then their feed, they fed it to cows and got cannabinoid levels for eleven cannabinoids. So now it's going to be the meat and the uh, dairy stuff. Wow. And so we're helping supply hemp to them for these studies. And so, so we can gather data to apply for the animal applications because again, just because it's allowed for humans doesn't mean it's allowed for. And so even hemp seed currently isn't allowed for livestock, which is confusing to people, <laughs> but it's not because yeah. it hasn't been approved or for even for chickens, it's not approved. Um, the hemp feed Alliance. Oh God, I hope I, I'm saying their name correctly. I'm not getting the wrong acronym, um, but just <laughs> apply, just submitted to because um, you can either for hemp for animal feed you can either go to the to an ingredient under AFCO, which is the American Animal Feed Coalition organization or something like that. I'm probably or commission yeah. organization. Ah, gosh, but um, it's AFCO. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I was going to say FDA. that gets into an area I really don't don't uh, yeah, or or it's the FDA and they also will yeah. approve animal foods and so they've applied for that and so I think it's going to get approved but it's just being done because again somebody had to gather that data and it's just like there's all of these holes along the way because people don't realize what needs to be done and yeah. I think that the I'm working with the Hemp Industry Association and trying to get a to try and get some of that type of traction. And the hemp industry yeah. and then the hemp roundtable is doing it for like getting that supplement bill passed or trying to. Um, but I think on the other side, it's just we just need to get industry involved to create it, to get a CBG grass study, to get a CBG food additive study, mm -hmm. to get it. Yes. And yep. the whole industry should be, you know, otherwise it's going to end up where this business owns this and this business owns this and this business owns this and everyone will catch up. But we're, I mean, do we want that to be the industry? I don't think it'll help right. farmers or anyone else. So, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I like this idea of trying to figure out a way to cooperatively bring the industry together to essentially bring uh, to bring down what you were talking about earlier, these barriers of entry to to really bring them down for, um, you know, most of the smaller players who don't have the money to put together an independent you know, scientific board that's going to organize studies, maybe work with a contract research organization or find, you know, universities or something um, to be able to, yeah, kind of almost have this like research co-op to pursue these grass studies and get approvals on things before either a big company does their own or um, I still am unclear on what it would, in what would be entailed if 
a pharmaceutical company rushed, you know, to uh, get something done with CBG, you know, over oh, the next they two could, years. They could do it quicker than that. I'm sure there's people doing it. Oh, and yeah. I'm, yeah. A, I'm, af I'm afraid we're going to get beat. And that's what I'm, but I'm, I, the one question now is because of the farm bill is how, and it's legal to possess is now people have made CBG products, but they're not yeah. approved for food use. So how would the courts rule that? So right. that's a new situation, but I believe again from the red yeast rice situation that they would rule uh, in favor yeah. of the pharmaceutical companies because yep. it wasn't a controlled substance there, and you know they. So I'm, it's it's a toss up. I, I again, it would probably come down to a judge. <laughs> yeah, and you, you just pointed out a good precedent. There's a paper I need to add in the show notes for here, but there's a. There's a nice little review paper of uh, sort of regulatory issues facing CBD. It was written like two years ago, maybe or so, um, but it applies to everything else, CBG and everything else too. But it it talks about uh, that issue that you just brought up um, and one or two other similar cases where probably of the fish oils, um, the mega oil. So. There's a, like, maybe that's the I only one that's also become a food. That's like the only one. Yeah. Like where it's a drug and a food, but it was already kind of used for food before. And so yeah. like that's, it's hard for these substances where they have therapeutic and food uses. And then, and so cannabis gets into that and then the recreational. And so it's like trying to find these. So I think like this cannabis on this bill is almost the only way for some of this to happen. Because the thing is, is like if the FDA had to go back and look at everything we eat now and only approve things that are safe, <laughs> we wouldn't be eating or drinking a lot of the things in our food <laughs> supply currently. And they grandfathered in things. And so yes. I think that's something that people also need to be aware of is that like, don't assume that everything you eat is safe. because like, And it doesn't mean it's horrible, but it just means like we haven't studied it that much because a lot of things are just grandfathered. Um, yep. And so I'm just applying that in terms of like, quantifying risks here because if we're talking yes. about cannabis this way i'm like it does, our food's the same way mostly so cannabis just wasn't grandfathered exactly exactly just because of the way it was handled when a lot of these things were being passed in the 70s 80s and 90s because i think deshay passed in sometime in the 90s um 92 as well as i, I think that yeah um you know all of these regulations around foods and supplements that that rolled out well, cannabis was always off to the side, never, never a part of any of that because it was prohibited and you know not allowed in anything. And yeah, so it never got grandfathered in. And so this is where we're at. Um, and that's a really good point that you make that a lot of the things that are in the supply chain now have skirted around the way new things are handled going forward. And there's a lot of frustration among a lot of people of like, why are we having to jump through all these hoops with cannabis when... You know, we know that there are foods out there that, you know, I could go buy right now that if I ate in abundance every day, I would destroy my my kidneys and liver and, you know, all these things. Um, but it's it's just a weird way that history has played out um, and with the passage of rules and the way things get grandfathered in, the way things get excluded. Um, it's it's a mess. And it's also highlighting the kind of funny fuzzy distinctions we have between food and medicine and and dietary supplements and that it's it's all on this spectrum uh and it's all you know it, there's it's all all foods are drugs you know and and so it's it's uh it's a tricky thing and maybe much further down the line because i don't see it happening in my lifetime but you know maybe eventually 
uh, we overhaul, you know, the way that foods and drugs and dietary supplements are, are managed altogether to better um, recognize some of those fuzzy distinctions. I mean, there are medical foods now, um, you know, in sort of these, these categories. Other countries have kind of handled it better in certain cases uh, where they kind of have uh, simpler pathways for uh, medicinal plants and stuff to go through to be treated as a, as a medical food or as a, an actual medicine, but in herbal form. Germany um, seems to be really good at that. I like a lot of what Germany does in particular, but they have a long history of it. Like you said, the U.S. is. And so I think that that's the other side is the United States, um, because I feel like primarily the people who made the rules in our country were white Europeans and they <laughs> yeah. and they were here in a country where the plants that were being used primarily were not plants that they were aware of. And so they criminalized them and uh, didn't recognize the medicinal value of. And meanwhile, you have the same types of people in their native countries recognizing the value of these plants, which are natively there and making rules for them. And I think that kind of removing uh, the United, like Europeans culturally from Europe almost separated us culturally from plant medicine in the United States mm -hmm. more so than other places because it removed the heritage, I suppose, or tradition of that here comparatively because the people yeah. who had that tradition were the natives who didn't really have any rule allowance to make rules. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. They're just excluded from the conversation altogether. So that's another aspect in with what Panacea is trying to do is that we're, we've reached out to some groups um, to try and, and we're still looking for some. So I hope maybe somebody will hear this, but We've reached out to groups at the Native American churches who, uh, who utilize peyote and things uh, and others because we've for, filed uh, patents or methods to increase the yield in peyote and mescaline for other cactus and compounds and for our mm -hmm. ayahuasca and other plant, you know, psychotropic vidrius or metastrophic copy. And we want yep. to give licenses to groups like that and offer equity in our company for free to groups that traditionally have utilized these things so that way they can benefit from it because we wouldn't be doing, I wouldn't be doing the research I am if even though these substances were illegal, they didn't fight the court cases like the peyote case against the federal government to be able to have these things and to be able to keep their yeah. traditional medicine. And so though like they have been disenfranchised. And so I think it's important to, to do that. And I think you're seeing that more in the psychedelic community than you had with businesses than you did in the cannabis community. And I'm yeah. loving it, especially in Canada, there's groups like, like field trip and things they have, um, and I, I'm not, I don't want to, like, I'm not saying that no one is like, I'm not trying to, but, uh, yeah. like, but I'm just specifying people I know who are. Um, and it's just great. They have groups that are working with tribal groups or forming, you know, trying to have equity with those groups and having stakeholders that are from tribes and it allow, and also offering equity to the scientists that are involved more. And I think mm -hmm. they've said something like 30% of their equity for the entire company is going to be devoted to either scientists or indigenous groups. And wow. it's like things like that, which yeah. to me yeah. is my vision of capitalism yes <laughs> it's right. like yeah it's like, so pete Buttigieg. i don't really like capitalism i'm i lean more towards socialism but i also like the idea of people being able to make decisions and not have this top-down control as much so how do you blend those types of ideals mm -hmm. and i think that it's changing the societal views is a better way than laws sometimes and if you can encourage people and create your own entities this way then you can do that you just create what you want to see that's that's right. Yeah. And you you pointed out maps earlier. And 
Um, you know, MAPS recently spun out a public benefit corporation off of their nonprofit. And I think these public benefit corp models is sort of the new wave of what you're talking about that a lot of companies are trying to, they're trying to write in some of these equity pieces into their bylaws, into their articles of incorporation and everything. And basically saying like, even if I lose control over this company, by our very structure, uh, we're about more than just maximizing shareholder value. Or if we're all about maximizing shareholder value, we're specific about who those shareholders have to be, uh, you know, or, or you know, well, what, how we're tying them in. And we want to give them equity early. So that's yeah. our goal right now is to find these groups because we're starting to talk to people who want to get who invest in us. And it's that situation where I want them to get as much from it as possible. So the more they're involved, then they'll their stock will just be worth more and more yep. and then they'll benefit from it. So additionally, yes, do it that way. But if you just give them control early, then it's yep. even more beneficial, I, I would hope. I mean, but it's also I'm finding resistance in some groups. My family has, I have my stepfather is uh, full Native American. And then I also have some history of mine and that um, has allowed us to have access to some of the groups to have these discussions. And there's natural hesitancy because I'm mm -hmm. majority Caucasian individual and a You're male. You're very white. I, yeah. I was like, and, and so I understand the hesitancy and it, it's interesting because of the history that even when you're trying to do the right thing, sometimes people yeah. are scared of you. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, at, you know, for good reason. I mean, I, that's why uh, I don't blame them. I'm not, yeah. I don't, I lived in the Caribbean in the British Virgin Islands and I worked in a newspaper there for a while. And they were, and there is groups there who hate white people and don't want them there. And because of what happened, I'm, kind of hard pressed to be mad at them right yeah it's like i i get it <laughs> like it's you have every right to be upset um yeah absolutely um and let's and once again stop me if you're running short on time um but i a, i wanted 10 to, minutes about 10 or 10 12 minutes. more minutes okay that's perfect um because i i wanted to to bring this around to to talking about hunter s thompson i wasn't going to let you go without talking about this so uh, yes, yes. Show the tattoo. Yep. I wish I had my shirt on. I've got a shirt with that that uh, logo on it. Um, I do have my books back here. I don't know if anybody can see them, but I've got a little Hunter S. Thompson uh, little set here. Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know if you've seen this one. Um, it's not by Hunter S. Thompson, but it's actually by Ralph Stedman. Have you ever seen? I was I saw. I have. Yeah, That's Stedman's a, amazing. I love even. I don't even drink alcohol anymore, but like I love seeing the beer aisle with the with his work on. I can't remember which brewery it is, but. I know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I've seen it before. Yeah. So let's just uh, leaving all of this other stuff that we've talked about behind to go on a tangent here on on something I think is very important on a personal level. Um, what is it about Hunter S. Thompson that kind of draws you to his spirit? I mean, I know you're a journalism and you've worked not just in journalism, but also in sports journalism. So there's obviously a deep connection there. And anyone that maybe isn't familiar with Hunter S. Thompson, I mean, one, uh, just do a Google search, by God. I mean, geez. But a uh, huge uh, journalist and, and particularly got his fame uh, – when he was doing a lot of sports journalism, but just uh, speak a little bit about that. Why, uh, why are you so passionate about Hunter S. Thompson? And maybe what are some things we could learn from his perspective in this day and age? Oh, definitely. So I'm from Barstow, California as well. And oh my gosh. Who's, yeah. <laughs> and anyone who's seen Fear and Loathing might know that it is backcountry <laughs> or yeah, read the book. Exactly. Um, and so 
um, having the interest in journalism, science, and the things I do, and being from there and being exposed to that early on in my life, kind of even before I ever took a psychedelic, I saw that movie and read yeah, those books. Me too. And yeah. so I, it, you know, it, that and the doors of perception, although Huxley's also a hero, but back to which I also feel like he, you know, affected affected Huxley or affected a. Um, him because Other way that's around, yeah. the, 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 sorry, yeah, that's the, and that's the, that's almost the first step of gonzo journalism because he took it and wrote about it. Nobody did. I mean, there's a few people, but that's like the beginning, the six, that was when people started doing that. And so then you have Hunter Thompson, who I'm sure read that book and was exposed to that and then sees that, but then also was doing journals at the time. And it's just, uh, I connected with it because habit, like I said, the PTSD and other issues is just, uh, you, this I feel like you rebel so as you, when you're younger and I initially had mistrust of these organizations. And as I've learned more, I've understood more why things exist. So I understand them, mm -hmm. but I still have never voted for a third. I always vote for a third party candidate um, because I have distrust of systems as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that people need to learn to work within inside them. But what I think is interesting is that I think there's a lot of knowledge to be gained outside of facts. Or sometimes as a journalist, I know things that I couldn't put in an article because I didn't, I couldn't prove it. I couldn't, mm -hmm. like, I didn't have a fact. I couldn't, I couldn't put my personal view on something or I was always trying not to. Yeah. Um, and so there is value for unbiased reporting. And that is very, very important. However, there is also value in subjective and other reporting because there's information that cannot be um, shared through that method. And I think they're both valuable as long as you are open about which is which. Yes. And, yeah. uh, and so his questioning of people like Nixon, obviously, and also his views on politics aligned with mine and always like that. I almost would be an anarchist and libertarian if it wasn't for my realization as, um, as Sinclair also, yeah. you know, influenced me that people will do anything. And yeah, so same here. that's yeah. why if you want to do it to yourself, that, that I think that also, though, that Hunter Thompson spoke about protecting people. His he wasn't just about doing whatever you wanted. He was trying to protect the small person. He was trying to protect the individual against the government, against the business, against whatever that thing was. And I that believe is. Yeah. And sometimes that's violence or craziness. Uh, and it can be effective. People don't often like that, but I don't believe that Martin Luther King would have been as effective without Malcolm X. Um, I don't think that he would have been effective as it wasn't for the Black Panthers. Um, all of these things influence each other that they don't exist in a vacuum. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so Hux, or so um, I just think that he has a huge, he had a huge role on me in those views. And I think that also it teaches you to share your stories and to to challenge authority and to have those questions, you but you don't have to challenge it in a way that gets you in trouble or arrested either. <laughs> so, yeah. um, it's just I don't know. I, I think he it's just a, a fascinating individual. But I also enjoyed his wife's take. Um, mm, I don't know if you yeah. read much, um, and that she indicated that while some of the drug use and some of the insanity was helpful, that he also suffered from mental illness and that mm -hmm. a lot of it was coping with that. And that he went overboard and made it worse uh, and that he could have had many years more productivity uh, and happiness and more happiness had he limited that somewhat. And so, and I agree 
to some extent. And, and as mm-hmm. I, like I said, I don't drink anymore. And so um, I, like Aldous Huxley touches on this in a lot of his work to go back to him about yeah, the, yeah, the yeah. quantification of the life of a beef eater versus a heroin addict, uh, basically being, you know, someone who's sober versus someone who, and lives to be 80 versus someone who dies at 50 or 30 and utilizes drugs, but experiences ecstasy. Um, right. What is right? And I don't think there is a right or a wrong. I mean, I, I that's a tough dis- discussion. Um, and yeah. I think that society values productivity for obvious reasons. But <laughs> I also think that to go deeper into a tangent that artificial intelligence and robotics are going to replace humans for the majority of industry and that COVID exposed the need for that due to human interaction causing illness spread in situations of emergency. And it's just going to happen. And if similarly to all these other things, if we don't start socializing that, taxing it or creating a way for the government and the people to all access it equally, we're going to end up in the same situation where business overtakes it. The other thing is then what are we going to all do for money? So if you're against socialism, that's fine for the reason, but I'm telling you right now there it's the Star Trek model where we don't need to make food. We don't need to make is coming nuclear fusion. I don't yeah. care if I sound crazy. I don't care. Yeah, nuclear I, fusion yeah. is coming and we won't need power anymore. And when these things happen, I believe in our lifetime, what are we going to do as a society, as a world? Yep. And I don't think that any of our systems are designed for this. Yeah, and, and, and there are there's no serious discussion about it. I mean, when you bring it up, uh, this was something that very lightly Andrew Yang sort of tried to bring to the presidential discussions, you know, like the coming automation and, you know, just how widespread it's going to be and what are people going to do? Uh, what do you do with all these displaced people that no longer their jobs become completely irrelevant? Um, you know, it's it's a huge thing. What do we do with our time? What do we actually value about life? Like, what's what's the point if we don't have to work? What do we do? And and this actually touches, and I'll start to well, look at the time that. machine. The time machine. Right. I mean, like that touches on it very well because it's like the threat yeah. of that. And so, I it's it, but it doesn't. You can be afraid of it, but it's coming. It is, and like <laughs> uh, I think I have a book back here by Nozick, uh, Robert Nozick, that wrote about. Um, you know, the thought experiment of the experience machine, which Aldous Huxley brings up in Brave New World of like getting into this future where you don't really have to do anything. And you also have the ability to jump into whatever experiences you want to have through either virtualization or, or whatever, or just a, um, you know, expansion of resources. And so these are important thought experiments to have and to, to plug something I'm working on. And then I'll, I'll close all of this, but I'm working on a new podcast that, will launch um, hopefully at the end of this year, but because uh, I've been itching to talk about things beyond cannabis, because um, cannabis really is such a small part of my of all of my life, even though I like to do so much work with it. Um, so I have a new podcast coming called Isn't Life Curious? And the whole point of that is to focus on science and philosophy topics uh, with the hope of pressing people to think about some of these very issues um, of what's the point of being alive? Like, what are we doing here? And um, how how do we spend our time when there aren't uh, requirements to make money? You know all these things. And that's a small piece of some of the things I want to explore, but it is a huge part of the philosophical aspect. Um, these are conversations that aren't just like funny things to to talk about. And that's like interesting, you know, intellectual, you know, uh, um, 
uh, opium or something, but it's 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 real, um, and it's it's just a matter of time. It's like, will it happen in our lifetime or the next? It's, it seems like it could very well happen in our lifetime, as far as you know, the dominoes really starting to fall. And I think I agree with you that COVID has highlighted how fast it can actually happen under pressure. Um, that when there is some sort of you know widespread issue. Um, that some of these technological advances um, happen very, very quickly. The virtualization of education is a great example of that. Um, I'm not saying that's gone well, but the speed at which all of a sudden new tools and resources and stuff are being made available so that people can teach from anywhere and take classes from anywhere, which is already coming into play. But I mean, in one year, there's been a massive infrastructure change um, that is not going to go away, even when in-person learning comes back virtualized education is here to stay. Um, and there are going to be other examples of that. I think there are going to be other um, um, forces at play, just like you're talking about, of uh, widespread um, uh, automation of certain jobs that now there's even more pressure because uh, businesses are recognizing, like, we don't know what's going to happen next after COVID or is there going to be another thing that we have to deal with and how do we how are we prepared for if people can't come into work how do we keep things moving and, and the business sustainable? So these are all real things um, that we need to talk about. And something I appreciated from Hunter S. Thompson was, like you're saying, there's value in learning from perspective and being able to get into someone else's eyes sort of and to see the world the way that they do. And even if you don't agree with the way they see the world, to take away some some insight or even if it just pushes you to question how you view things. I think that was a big value that Hunter S. Thompson brought. And even I tell people when I go to cannabis conferences, I feel very much like Hunter S. Thompson because I feel like I'm walking around seeing a bunch of lizards. <laughs> I mean, now everyone in the industry is going to hate me, but I mean, it is, it sort of feels that way. Um, well, I can, I, I can say that every MJ BizCon, at least once I'm on something, so. Yeah, I mean, it makes it a lot easier. Uh, it's, it's, I mean, it's fascinating. There's a lot to learn from watching what, how people are responding to, to all of these trends and what their motivations are and everything. And yeah, it's, it may not be fa necessarily fact-based journalism, but there's huge value in that perspective. And I view it extremely valuable from a philosophical perspective, because I think philosophical insight and critical thinking is something that we have largely eroded in our culture and, um, and that we need to bring back. And well, I know, Oh, go ahead. Sorry. I just, I have to touch on this because I agree. And I think that it also plays to the potential fears of what will happen in when these things happen, like in the time machine of people seeking bliss, uh, and yes. 1984 and, and brave new world and the fear of, if people seek bliss and avoid negative things, then will they want to learn? Will they want like, and so right. because negative experiences can be informing or sometimes the, the ability to access knowledge takes pain that they see sometimes yes. uh, or work. And so I think that um, it's something that like people always ask me things and it's like, I just, I'm obsessed. I do this constantly. Like I like learning knowledge, but like, it's not always, uh, I'm not always healthy with my time management. <laughs> yeah, likewise. Yeah. I mean, I, I just got over a bout of shingles because I stressed myself out so much not taking care of myself that um, I, I ended up triggering a, a shingles outbreak. Um, I have rotator cuff and trigger finger from too much stuff like that. So I, I it's something that I've had to learn is balance. And yep. before the ketamine, actually, there was a window in that time period after it. It's like a where I was 
better about it because I hadn't gotten as busy. And it's one of those things where mm -hmm. it's like those things help, but then it's like finding that balance again. And so it's, um, it's, it's like everything. And so you realize that even if you know these things, you can get out of balance. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, that's, I teach people all the time and I still, you know, disregard a lot of the very things that I teach on a regular basis because I'm a human. <laughs> and so that's uh -huh. just the way it goes. Well, um, thank you so much. Oh, this has been great. Yeah, I, I knew this would be a good conversation. Um, yeah, I had a really good sense about it. And I, I'd love to get together with you again and, and continue the conversations as more um, comes about. So let me know um, as things progress with um, both your companies and in your, in any of your endeavors. I mean, I follow you, but, um, you know, keep me looped in and we'll come back around and, and chat some more. I'm sure. I mean, a lot of the stuff that we set up here, we could go on for hours about, I'm sure. So, um, I look forward to seeing what all you guys, uh, pull through and, um, keep up the great work with, you know, not just, you know, what you're doing with your companies, but also, you know, the role that, you know, you're playing just in the communication of ideas, both scientific and philosophical, um, I take that very seriously, and I really value that when I find people that, you know, kind of hone in on that, whether it's just a natural expression of who you are or whatever. Um, I think that's extremely valuable and we need more of, so so keep it up. Well, thank you so much. Um, I really like the work that you've been doing, and so it's, and this is something I've wanted to to do and get on your show for a while, so I'm, I'm excited to see this come out. And like you, like I mentioned the workshop earlier, and I know that you're one of your sponsors, so yeah. but just again, they've I mean, they were one of the innovators. So it's, I'm, I also feel humbled that I've just been able to be in the right place at the right time. Likewise. Yep. That's, it's a lot goes, <laughs> a lot goes unsaid about that, but it is a lot of it is right place at the right time and taking advantage of the opportunities you have in front of you, I think is a huge, huge piece of that. Um, but yeah, everyone listening, um, you know, go check out Panacea Plant Sciences and um, Zeese Farms and David Heldreth and all of the awesome things that they have going on. Check out their patents. And, and I hope that after this conversation, people listening will have a better perspective of how you're coming at the, the patenting and everything. And I think it's, it's going to be really exciting when people uh, get a better sense of your full vision there. Um, there's, there's a lot of great things going on. So anyway, thanks so much, everybody, for tuning in. If you've listened this long, congratulations. Uh, um, you've made it an hour and a half. Uh, and find Curious About Cannabis, um, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And you can also check us out at cacpodcast.com. And with that, stay curious and take it easy. Bye-bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. 